0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. On this week's podcast, I'm pleased to welcome my good friend, Miles S., I recently attended a meeting where Miles received a standing ovation to mark his forty years of continuous sobriety. I know that, to many, this kind of AA milestone is somewhat incomprehensible, but the story of his journey is chock-full of similarities which anyone with any length of sobriety will identify. Raised in a suburban family with a history of alcoholism, Miles' mother suffered the disease, but never sought help. By the time his parents divorced when Miles was eleven, The die had been cast for his future of drinking and using drugs. Amidst the turmoil of his home life, Miles took refuge in the various jobs he worked at to make money for the pursuit of what he wanted in life. The solid work ethic he forged was largely unaffected by his growing dependence on alcohol and drugs. In a perverse way, however, his abilities to earn money and afford more drugs only accelerated his emotional and spiritual slide to the bottom. It was at that point Miles finally asked for and accepted help. At 22, he landed in an inpatient treatment center, followed by sober living and IOP. AA was the logical and all-important next step, and thus began his extraordinary journey to long-term sobriety. Miles' story is more than an instructive, cautionary tale. It's a fascinating amalgam of life's lessons learned the hard way, both before and after getting sober. His experience as an action-oriented yet selfless member of AA continues to reassure everyone he touches. His success in building a solid family while achieving remarkable business accomplishments is proof positive that staying centered and active in AA can truly help dreams come true and stay true for years to come. So please enjoy the next hour and 20 minutes of AA Recovery interviews as you listen to the uplifting and inspiring words of my good friend and longtime AA brother, Miles S.
1: My name is Miles S. and I am an alcoholic.
0: I'm glad you're here, Miles. Glad to be here. You know, you are one of the most patient people I know, because this is the third take of this part of the interview. Uh, Uh, We lost about the first third the other day uh, due to some technical difficulties, and I haven't had that technical difficulty before, and it came up, and then it came up again, and you're back for your third time to fill in the part that we missed. You were brilliant on the first take. (laughs) You were superb on the second take. There's nowhere to go but up here. That's a high bar, Howard. I really appreciate you doing the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Uh, You and I have known each other a really long time, and I've always enjoyed seeing you. You've been sober quite a long time now, haven't you? I have been sober a
1: long time, four decades
0: and a few months,
1: February 26, 1983. I went to the meeting that you got your 40-year chip. You
0: were there. Yeah, I was there. I think they had to go out and get one from Intergroup or something like that. Uh-huh. I think Pat and a few others are into the 40s, George yeah. and some of the others are into the 40s. Yeah. Pat's coming up on 50 this November. Pretty amazing. Well, so when you got to AA, what did you imagine your life was going to be like a year, five years, 10 years? Did you give that much thought? I really had hope, you know, before I
1: checked into treatment and got sober, mm-hmm. I just felt like my life was going nowhere. Like I was going to amount to nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I just really believed in my heart of hearts that I was not going to live my best life. I wasn't going to be my best version of myself. And I didn't know why I didn't, you know, I, I mean, cause I'd been doing drinking and doing drugs since I was 11. I was 22 when I got sober and I just I'd kind of always operated that way. And as you and I have talked, like every, you and I both were the kind of alcoholics that we were every single day, we had to get high, we had to get drunk or both. There was no, well, I'll I'll work hard for a week and stay sober and then I'll go party or I'm just a
0: weekend guy. We were both everyday users. What you just said was you wanted to be your best self. But Mm -hmm. for what, 10, 12 years, you'd been a drug user and an alcoholic. So how would you have known what your best self was? I just knew it wasn't that.
1: I, I knew what I was doing was not it, you know. And I really thought, you know, I got sober because the drinking and drugging I knew was going to kill me. I knew mm-hmm. I wasn't going to live to be twenty-five. I was twenty-two, and I knew I wouldn't live another three years. But a bigger fear than dying to me was I'm going to live another fifty years and just have a terrible existence. You know, I, I've always wanted to have a big life. I, I wanted to see the world. I wanted to own companies, make money, get married, be, have an amazing marriage, you know, mm-hmm. not just get married, but have an amazing relationship with a true best friend for life, have kids that I raised differently. I wanted to stop the patterns in the family of alcoholism and drug addiction, you know, long history of that. And so my wife and I were both determined, like, we're, we're not going to do that to our kids, you know. And so I was very intentional about it. That being said, I had no idea when I checked into treatment that it was a program of abstinence 24 hours a day for ever. you know. I mean, I just felt like surely they can teach me how to, you know, again, drink and snort cocaine like a gentleman. I was heartbroken when they told me that's not the program. <laughs>
0: you mentioned there's a history behind the drinking in your family. Mm-hmm. What did that particular history, how did it play out in your early life?
1: You know, my mother, I believe, was an alcoholic. She never came in these rooms, so she never she never got there. But um, the things she did led me to believe that. My grandfather on my father's side, I never met him, but he basically just abandoned his wife and kids for another wife, set of wife and kids in the 1930s. And he was a gambler, all I can hit. And he had, you know, he's one of these guys who was either— Wealthy or broke, you know, couldn't
0: couldn't pay for the kids' schooling. I'm sure it goes back further. How was it dealt with in your house, though? As stuff came up with your mother's drinking, was it the big elephant in the room? Was it something to be swept under the nearest carpet?
1: No, my parents got divorced when she twisted off, and so... And how old were you? I was 11. Elizabeth. Yeah, and okay. so and I went and lived with my father. My sisters went and lived with my mother. With, with within a year and a half, two years, they were everybody. We were all living with my dad. He was the only stable uh, parent in our childhood. That must
0: have been really rough.
1: It was tough, uh, but you know, there's like everything bad that happens to you or what you perceive as bad is good. There's always gifts, you know. Sure. I mean, she taught me a lot of things. My father taught me a lot of things. I mean, that, that's. I'm sure my children, if they were in a therapy session, would say, well, you know, it's good and bad to Miles, and that's
0: true, you know. Would you say that the uh, that what your mother taught you, You they split when you were 11, you went to live with your dad. Is that when the lessons from your mother kind of stopped at that point, or did you continue to have lessons either directly or vicariously? That's
1: when they, those lessons blossomed because I saw her living the— alcoholic lifestyle the partying lifestyle we'll call it um and watching her basically blow up her family you know just destroy her family her mother Mm -hmm. didn't want to talk to her her father didn't want to talk to her her sister didn't want to talk to Mm -hmm. her you know her her brother-in-law like nobody like she was out there in in the wind all by herself Mm -hmm. and she was very defined about it well this is who I am this is who I'm going to be and I want to, I want to get high, get drunk, sleep around, do whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm going to do what I want to do, which is very much an alcoholic behavior, right? Yeah, sure. And you know, I remember one time when I was probably a teenager, she said to me, well, you know, what I do shouldn't affect you. And I was thinking, well, yeah, but that's not reality. Like what you do does affect me. And then when I got sober and went and met with her and, in a very brutally honest but non-accusatory way, told her, here's what it was like growing up as your child, and she just denied it all. Either She had no recollection of it or she couldn't
0: face her own demons, probably the latter. Did you do that just by yourself, or was that done in a therapeutic setting? No, I did it uh, just me and her, yeah. So there wasn't anybody, any third party there to no. kind of delve into her part in it? no. Huh.
1: No, I was in aftercare. I, was, I had two years of aftercare after the halfway house and met once a week. And they encouraged me because I was very angry at her. Hmm. And, you know, they the the aftercare leader was, uh, I think it was a psychiatrist, but he was sober. And he just mm-hmm. said, Miles, you cannot stay sober and keep this resentment. It also hurt my relationship with women. Yeah. You know, you're, as a child, how your mother treats you or how your father treats you it's how you see men and women out there in the world. True. yeah, You know, and so it was, uh, I was not a very good boyfriend <laughs> before <laughs> that. And and so it was a, an incredibly freeing experience, even though I don't feel like she could hear me. She yeah. certainly didn't agree with me. Uh-huh. But it was a very freeing experience for me to tell her what it was like, you know, my experience. Sure. And then i could forgive her then i could let it go and just go you know where i ended up with it howard as i said to myself she did the best she could with the skills she had that's it and she was my cousin who I was very close to who just died a year or so ago lost his battle with cancer we both believed and that she was abused as a child uh seriously abused you know, whether you're a child or an adult, if you don't deal with your mm-hmm. issues, they always come home to haunt you, to torment you. And and what you do, in my experience, is you also bring that to other people.
0: And typically the people you love and care about the most, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. I don't want to hurt my kids, but if I don't deal with my shit, I'm going to hurt my kids.
0: So the first 11 years of your life, you were directly affected by your mother and your sure. father to a lesser degree. But you hit 11 how closely does that coincide with you starting to drink?
1: Yeah, no, they got divorced and I had my first drink two weeks later. Uh, I was at summer camp, tennis camp. My uh, counselors the last night at tennis camp thought it'd be a great idea to get get us drunk and they did. and so you know
0: So it wasn't on your own volition. It wasn't like I've been wanting to do this or boy, I wonder if this would change the way I feel. It was just because it was there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was a straight-A student, choir boy. Huh. Uh, was always I've, I've always been very competitive. So I was in this group. It was 100 hand-selected boys in Houston called the Singing Boys of Houston. They went mm-hmm. around to all the elementary schools, and you auditioned, and I, I made it, and and i was very driven in everything i did still am and which is again it's a uh, good sure. character but it's also something that can hurt you as well when you bring that home to your wife and kids and so i was a really good kid drinking was not even in the radar i was in a lot of pain mm. you know and i didn't understand why my family blew up i didn't understand why my mother was doing what she was doing i knew nothing of alcoholism my father was a totally normal drinker like yeah have a
0: beer, not a beer. He didn't care, you know. How did you feel about that? That pain that you were experiencing at that time. Uh, how were you dealing with it before you actually found alcohol and drugs?
1: I, I would say I didn't deal with it. I, I probably shut down. Shut down. Uh, I probably I was very active in sports. Rode motocross. You know, baseball. Whatever. I mean, I, I just put it into things I was doing. Um, so it was
0: diversionary as opposed yeah, diversionary, to diversionary.
1: That's a good way to put it. Right. And, and just didn't really deal with it. I mean, it was 1972. It wasn't, you know, the thought process back then wasn't, Hey, let's get the kids. some. We're You and I are going to get divorced, Howard. And, yeah. you know, we got young kids and let's, let's get them some stuff. They need someone they can talk to, right? which is such a great thing that's come about in the last 20 years. It's like, you know, Parents get divorced, and they think about the children, and think about uh-huh. let's get them someone they can talk to and say whatever they want about us, and we don't need to hear about it. But they need to have a safe place that they can vent. Yeah, that's what therapy does for you. That's what AA does for you. It's a safe place to tell your story, to tell your feelings. Yeah, and to you
0: know not be judged and to be supported. That kind of uh, thinking wasn't around in 1972 no. or 82 or even maybe even 92. Yeah. No. I've had to experience that kind of thing through going to a family week by being in AA by working the program, also by being in therapy for like, you know, 25 30 years, talk therapy, and of course the clinical depression being treated with antidepressants on mm-hmm. top of that has all made it possible for me to get to the things which were the real triggers for the way I felt about myself inside, yeah. yeah. But what you were talking about—getting yourself more involved in sports and motocross and whatever else—you've uh, you, all you also started working at a pretty young age too, didn't yeah. you?
1: It was that's a great uh, segue because that same summer, my father got me a job at the Gallery Ice Skating Rink. It, there was a was a hot dog stand. Oh yeah. So I was the. Manager of the hot dog stand, you know, for, and and in sixth grade or seventh grade, whatever that was, 11 years old, I was probably working 15, 20 hours a week. That's something, and I've said this in meetings, you know, that, and I really learned this in therapy about 20 years ago. Counselor Mm -hmm. said, you know why you're good at making money? And I said, "Uh, why? Because I work hard? No, no. She said, because when your childhood was crazy and nothing made sense to you as a child, right? When you went to work at this little hot dog stand, and if you worked 17 and a half hours, they had to, by law, pay you for 17 and a half hours. And when I checked in and did my punch
0: card, I mean, it was it was solid. There, yeah. was, there was no deviation. It was very stable. I mean, you knew that if you went to work, work would be stable as opposed to your home, huh? Yep, I needed that.
1: And, and I also, and it felt good to make money. It was a self-esteem builder. I mean, yeah. my self-esteem was obviously low. I mean, yeah. I didn't know... Back then, I didn't have one friend whose parents were divorced. Mm. It was not as common. Sadly, now it's too common. I think a lot of people give up before t- for they should, you know? Yeah. I'm sure you and I both know people that you go, God, if they could just work through it, you know? Because uh, divorce is a terrible thing for everybody, for the yeah. parents too. Yeah. You know, it's
0: no fun. Have you come close to that in your own life? No. My wife
1: and I have worked our tails off on our marriage. and. That's My goal in everything I do in life is take it to the next level. Our goal as a couple, as a married couple, is how do we take our relationship to the next level? Hmm. She is truly my best friend on the planet. I am her best friend. We have no secrets. She knows everything about me. I know everything about her. And the crazy thing is we're, you know, I'm 62. We're still figuring stuff out, you
0: know? I mean, you would think... You'd be done. <laughs> well, you know, you're in a different season of your life too. You True. know, the kids are grown.
1: Oh yeah, and then we've got grandkids now.
0: See, see, so you've got plenty of opportunity to be able to interact with the next generation yeah. in a way that perhaps you weren't. That's how it is for me too. When my son and daughter-in-law had the baby, which is the first grandchild we have, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can't tell you what a uh, how awesome it was and how grateful I was to be able to experience it firsthand, Mm -hmm. sober as a man who's been doing a lot of work over the years on his own marriage. My wife and I have been married going on 37 years Mm -hmm. now, and I never thought we would last 37 years. And there were times before I got sober because we were married for about a year and a half before I got sober. Yeah, served, I was going
1: to ask served. you that. So you were not sober when you got married. Uh, right. And, and That was probably fun for her. Well, you know what? Her, <laughs> her
0: father died a, a tragic alcoholic's death. I yeah. mean, he was, a, he was a really bad, bad alcoholic. Her mother was an untreated uh, wife of an alcoholic. Yeah. And my, my wife, you know, one of six kids, she kind of took the role in the family of fixer and everything else. She was the caretaker. Mm. and she was the one who cooked the meals. She was the one who did all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But my guess is, and we've talked about it in therapy before, that somewhere along the way, when women marry, or when men marry, but to a greater extent, when women marry men who are alcoholics or like their fathers, the reason they do is because they're trying to work something out today over a relationship that was decades old. Sure. And uh, does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it also goes to opposites attract, right? I mean, my mother uh, abandoned me as an 11-year-old child. Mm -hmm. And and that creates abandonment issues, you know? And so I was not a good, until I married uh, Terrell, I was not a good boyfriend ever to any girl I ever dated. Hmm. Uh, Especially when I got, you know, drunk or whatever. I mean, it was, all bets were off. There, there was no there was no integrity um,
0: because of your world view that you gained from your house
1: part, that was part of it you know part of it is you know you get drunk and you step outside your comfort zone and you step outside your integrity zone uh, at least that's my experience for you me step on toes yeah <laughs> you, you do whatever you want to do I didn't mean to hurt people in my alcoholism and drug addiction right i I was never faithful to any Girlfriend, I dated. I was a terror uh, on the on the females out there in the world, and I didn't mean to be. But it was—I think it was a combination of how my mother treated me. So I didn't trust women. Like when your when when your parent abuses you, abandons you, you know, does something kind of a a big when you have a big schism with a parent and you're young you just think, whatever sex, a father or mother, you just think, well, all men are like that. All women are like that. Because that's your... That's the model. Yeah, that's your model. And that's mm-hmm. your perception as a young kid, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. And that was another decision I made. I met Terrell, was a year and a half sober, something like that. You know, I just said, like, this is my person. Like, we, we met, got engaged, and got married in 11 months. And, and this November will be 38 years. And she's amazing. So and part of this gift of sobriety, coming to A meetings, sponsoring people, having a sponsor, mm-hmm. working the steps. To me, I had to go outside of that because I wanted more. Yeah. So to your point of therapy, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've done tons of therapy, individual couples. And my 60th birthday a couple of years ago, I had company that was failing that uh, took over from this guy and tried to save it. And it was not salvageable, but, you know. I worked on it for about a year and a half, and and it, and it finally, we just put a bullet in its head, which was the right thing to do. Just should have done it a year and a half earlier, but mm-hmm. I felt terrible. So I just called up my therapist, and I said, all right, I want to do six sessions with you. Here's the six things I want to do, bum, 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 you know, and can we uh-huh. do it in six sessions? She's like, yep. Yeah. And and that was, uh, we did it, it was during COVID, so we did it via Zoom. I was in Colorado. She was actually in Austin anyway. So that's a great tool to have in your arsenal to take yourself to the next level. And it's at the end of the day, you and I were talking about this and we grew up in a, in a AA that was a lot tougher in the tough love category. Right. Right. And, and I think that's great. I think some of that's needed now. I think some of it was probably too much, you know, but what I was taught is, Hey, Miles, if you want something, it's your responsibility to go out and get it. One of the mantras I tell my kids still to this day is you deserve to be happy. Yeah. Now you go figure out what happiness means to you because happiness mm. meet to me or to you is mm. going to be different, you know? Yeah.
0: And And I'll support you any way I can towards your goal. Yep. But you
1: figure it out and you do the work. We're big on doing the work in our family.
0: Did you adhere to the unwritten rule about no relationships in the first year? I did. I had a sponsor, Pat C, who
1: cracked a whip on me. Now I he was he was a sweetheart. I dated a lot, uh, and, um, but I didn't have anyone that I was seriously in love with. And I also came home, you know, treatment, uh, halfway house, that was four months. So I was locked away for four months, which was good for me. Um, and then I came back to Houston, um, and I, within a week I got a job in the construction industry and, and worked there. Um, and, and I was working a ton. You and you know, were
0: 22 years old at that time? 22,
1: yeah. And, right. I, and within six or eight months of being sober, I bought my first piece of real estate. And then a couple of months later, I bought my second piece of real estate, some condos that I kept for about 20 years. But, but I, I was working hard and I was going to meetings, you know, and, and, and I'd already done the 90 meetings in 90 days. I mean, I'd been living in a treatment center and a halfway house for 120 days.
0: So by the time you got married, you were ready
1: I was absolutely ready. Well, and I found the right person. I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, you either find the right person or you don't. And yeah. I I met Terrell, and we went out was helping a friend move in that her roommate and uh-huh. who was now has been married for thirty nine years for one of my close friends, uh-huh. and we went out for pizza and probably stayed up till four in the morning talking. And then uh, it was it. We spent every minute together. And like I said, we were married 11 months later. Everybody thought she was pregnant, but (laughs) we we just, we both
0: knew we were right. Yeah. And when you know it, you know it. I mean, that's how it worked out for me too. Yeah. Could we go ahead and rewind a little bit here to the years between when you first started drinking and let's say moving through middle school and high school? What did those years look like? I would say I woke up every day and got high.
1: I smoked weed every morning before, before I went and had breakfast. Huh. I mean, I would wake up and anesthetize myself, right? Did people um,
0: know you were doing it?
1: I think my parents kind of knew, but by then my father got remarried and and my two older sisters were living with us. My stepbrother and step- stepsister were living with us. Very, we we're very close together in age, all five of us. So you know, they had five kids living with them in not a big house mm-hmm. with, with no help with like uh, within we were in within two and a half years of each other, three years of each other. So it was a lot, especially uh-huh. teenagers, you know, teenagers can be uh-huh. exciting. <laughs> right. Yeah, I concur. I, I kind of think they knew it was going on. But again, because I made A's and B's because I was working and making my own money because I was paying I, if I went out on a date, I paid for it. If I bought a car, insurance, gas, I paid for everything. Hmm. Uh, and, and that was a common theme from very early on, you know. I, I, and that's part of why drugs were available to me. It would have been difficult to have, uh, you know, a glass of scotch in the morning before school and get
0: away with it. Sure.
1: Take a few bone hits, you kind of mellow out. Go to class. A little, kind little of breath spray, out. little eye
0: drops. Yeah, you know, you yeah, You yeah. to
1: go. You know, get high during lunch. My high school had a smoking section <laughs> back then. So the cigarette smokers would be in a circle on the outside and the pot smokers would be in a circle on the inside. We all, we all protected each other. I remember that. Yeah. And so I tell that to my kids and they're like, y'all had a smoking section? I'm like, yeah, I was wrong. So, so every morning I started off getting high. I get high at lunch. I sometimes I drink before school, uh, but not often, you know, that weekly night boozer's club that I was fraternity, that I was high school fraternity. I was president of my senior year. We met every Friday, our senior year, every Friday morning, an hour before school and would get drunk an hour before school. And so did anyone ever
0: find out about that? Did you guys ever get into trouble? It's crazy. No, we never got in trouble for that.
1: We visine and, and scope, you know, yeah. where we <laughs> brush our teeth, whatever. So it was, I mean, it's a different era, a different time. And, and yeah. you know, you think about America, we just come off of the Vietnam War, the 60s. I know my parents knew something was up. Yeah. I know they knew I got high and drank at an mm-hmm. early age. Yeah. But again, from the outside looking in, I kept up appearances. That was another thing that I was always constant is I had... I looked fairly clean cut. The moms of the girls I dated always liked me because I was yes ma'am, no ma'am. I would, I knew how to sell a sell a story. Like, and I think a lot of alcoholics are salesmen, saleswomen, right? You know, uh,
0: we have to be. We have to be to Uh, sell the lie. To sell the lie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Whatever I'm telling you is not how I actually feel on the inside, (laughs) but I'm telling you it's all good. Don't worry. You know, I will take care of your daughter like she's my beloved sister, you know, and I'll get her home on time and, you know, I'll give her a peck on the cheek at the door. It was all just bullshit, you know, but it was okay. let's go. You know, Wow. and then I'd have, you know, drugs, alcohol in the car. I mean, I my life revolved around alcohol and drugs every single day.
0: How were you able to pay for all that? Well, again, I worked. You were working because a lot of people I've interviewed, when they talk about their, their drug addictions mm-hmm. or even their alcoholism when they were younger, they had to do some spurious things. Along yeah, yeah, the way. yeah,
1: broken house, whatever. Right. No, I, I, I knew kids who do that. I just, my father was a man of high integrity. Uh, he was a very kind, loving person. You know, he always he was very affectionate. And always told me, he loved me, and. Mm-hmm. And he worked. I mm-hmm. mean, his father abandoned him when he was probably 11, which is another pattern, right?
0: Yeah, sure. We,
1: we both got abandoned when we were 11. And so he and his older brother um, supported his mother and his two sisters. And he worked at the grocery store 40 hours a week in high school. He he did everything, you know, to because, I mean, it was survival. For me, I was a level up. Uh, we, we weren't wealthy, but we weren't poor, right. right? So we were in the middle. I had food, clothing, and shelter. Right. Not not a lot of what I wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I, my dad said when I was 15, I said, Well, what kind of a car am I going to get when I turn 16? He said, How much money do you have? And I said, <laughs> Well, I had a bank account. I had yeah. a bank account early on, but I didn't have enough. And so I had to go borrow. I had my first. Bank loan when I was sixteen from a nineteen sixty nine SS RS Camaro, oh, great wow. car,
0: sweet, sweet. Yeah, ride.
1: wish I still had it, but yeah, blew a couple of engines and had to sell it. Um, <laughs> and then I bought another car, and then I bought a motorcycle. And so I, I just always worked. Again, I had a good relationship with money. Money worked for me because it made sense. And if I borrowed, I remember I went. This was in college, but a, a good friend of mine, Fraternity Brother, his. Father was uh you know successful guy, but he was a big gambler and he had, you know, junket at it. Caesar's Palace. And so we went skiing in Lake Tahoe in one, one year and he said, Well Miles, I'll I'll cover the food, I'll cover the hotel. If you just cover your plane ticket and uh, I said to his dad, I said, I don't have the money now, but I'll pay you back. And he's like he kinda looked at me like, okay, fine. And a couple months later I knocked on his door and I said, Hey, here's your check for the plane ticket. And he just about fell down. I remember he stumbled <laughs> back and he looked at me and he said, Miles, none of Lewis's friends have ever paid me back when they borrowed money. I said, well, I am. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. So he was a dentist. He was yeah. a doctor. He was my dentist forever and until he retired. And he was my kid's dentist. And he, as he got older, as yeah. we get older, we tell the same stories sure. over and uh-huh. over again. He told my kids every time they came in here, let me tell you something about your dad. Your dad's the only one of Louis's friends who ever paid me back. Um, And so my children grew up knowing that that's how you behave. Yeah. Right. There's negative imprints you can give to your children and there's positive imprints. So my kids have a good relationship with the money. They know if they borrow money, they got to pay. May take them a, a week,
0: may take them 10 years, but. Yeah. So money was a key to many doors for you opening mm-hmm. up, sounds to me like you were probably the guy who was the one financing the cocaine and mm-hmm. grass and- You figured that out. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're a pretty dynamic guy. What would your life have looked like had you not worked like you did? If you had, let's say, counted on your parents or- Had I had a trust fund? Well, yeah. Even if you had a trust fund, yeah. You know, I grew up around a lot of wealthy
1: kids. I mean, Houston, Texas is a very wealthy state. We're sure. very blessed. Mm-hmm. I grew up around some very wealthy families. Um, And, you know, they turn 16, they get a brand new car, Rolex, whatever it is, you know. Sure. At the time, I really wanted that. You know, I I didn't, I was never jealous. I was never upset. You know, I never felt like I was the victim. Yeah. But I'm like, man, that would be nice. I want that, you know. Mm -hmm. Part of my story is I vowed to be as successful or more successful than those guys that I grew up with that had more than I did. I'm like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to pass them. You just worked for it. I just worked for it. To your point, though, I am 100% convinced that had I been given too much money, if my parents had been wealthy and set up a trust fund for me, I would have been dead. I mean, I, I had a fraternity brother that we did an intervention on. I, I was sober probably two or three years. Family out of Galveston, extremely wealthy family. When he turned 21, he got $85 million. And this was, you know, 1982, right? A lot of money today, but a whole lot more back then. And he died a while ago. We, we did an intervention. He went to treatment. It worked for a while. But, man, I think it's, we don't we don't believe in trust funds for our kids and our family. We believe in everybody working for it because you feel good. It builds self-esteem. You have industry. You build it yourself, you yeah. know? And, and whatever you want. To your point earlier about kids. If one of my kids wanted to go join the Peace Corps, have at it. If that's yeah. what turns you on, do that. Yeah. Like you be you, Howard, and I will be me. Uh, and I will never apologize for me and don't ever apologize for you.
0: You mentioned a fraternity in high school, but you also, I think you said you uh, you were in a fraternity in college as well. Oh, yeah. And and can you, can you take us a little into that yeah. world?
1: I, I wanted to belong. You know, I had this secret from my mother being who she was. And Mm -hmm. I always felt when I was a little kid, I felt like if the other moms find out how bad my mother is, you know, alcoholism, sleeping or whatever, then they'll reject me, you know? And, and what does a middle school, high school kid want more than anything? They want peers. They want a community, you know? Yeah. So I didn't have as much of that. Certainly when I, by the time I got to college and again, I, I mentioned I roughnecked for a year in between high school and college mm-hmm. and so this fraternity I started doing rush and rush for men and rush, rush for sororities and fraternities are like night and day. Yeah sure. Fraternities it's all about parting and if right. you can produce fog on a mirror and, and pay the monthly dues you can get in a fraternity. <laughs> Girls they got to make grades they got to have yeah. pretty hair they got to have you uh-huh. know 10 outfits it's like crazy. Uh-huh. So for me, I just felt like these were my people. These people drank and partied just like I did.
0: Were they the same kind of guys you grew up with, the trust fund guys? Some of them. Not,
1: not everybody in a fraternity is rich. I mean, I was way poor compared to, you know, 90% of the guys in the fraternity.
0: But you had your money. I was own the money. poor kid,
1: but I had my own money. Yeah, that's Worked cool. in college, you know. Yeah. I came to college with a bank account from roughnecking on money I had earned, um, and so, but my parents helped me with tuition and books and stuff. Sure, and, uh-huh. and so, uh, and, you know, living in the frat house is cheap. You get food, you get, you get uh, room and board. Uh, if you're hungry in the middle of the night because you're drunk, then you just break into the kitchen and nobody really cares. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, the house mother cares, but right, right. she's a paid employee, so she can't uh-huh. say much. But,
0: right.
1: and I tell you, you know. I was focused on partying. I mean, mm. you know, mm-hmm. having, drinking, drugging women you know the fraternity life and and it was it was pretty crazy and it was since I left college and I don't know 10, 10 or 15 years something like that after I left our fraternity got kicked off campus and it, which is kind of what happens you know they get so out of control yeah. that the university requests that they leave <laughs> and then they have to figure it out and come back you know so that's my focus
0: was having fun yeah. You know, getting high. The fellas that were in your uh, fraternity, are you still connected with any of them? So Yeah, some of them
1: are, yeah. I've just kept in touch with a few of them, uh, not many. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, some have died, just like high school, college. You know, some people have died. Some people have uh, dr- driven off the cliff, you know, um, mm-hmm. drunk one night. I mean, by a 100 to 1, I'm... I've, I've made my closest friends in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I like men's meetings. Yeah, I like to sit on the front row. I mean, I'm, I'm still learning. Yeah. You know? At 40 years, I've got a lot to learn. The teachers are the ones who go out and try it again yeah. and come back with their tail between their legs.
0: I don't want to be a teacher. I want to be a student. <laughs> That's so beautifully said i I absolutely agree with that. Um, when you were in college and you were in the fraternity, did you start to notice any problems with your drinking and drugging, or was it just uh yeah, what kind of problems did you notice I just I started getting depressed, which is the opposite of my
1: personality i I wouldn't go into school i wouldn't passing classes, I would drop a class pretty quickly, and so And and just, you know, the spiral just kept getting worse. I mean, I I kept drinking more, drugging more, going on, you know, two, three-day benders. You know, spring break, uh, summer was a a week-long or a three-month-long bender. I mean, it Mm -hmm. just—and I just kept feeling more and more terrible, and I felt like I was going the wrong direction, you know.
0: Did you attribute that to alcohol and drugs?
1: Yeah. Uh, There were times where I would say, all right, it's a Tuesday night, you know, Uh, I've got an exam tomorrow at 9 a.m. Yeah. I'm not going to go out tonight. And then it was like, well, come on. There's some, you know, cute girls over here. All right. I'll have two beers. I could never have two beers. Right. You know, and then three o'clock in the morning, I'd drag home and wouldn't make it to class the next day and fail the Mm. test. And so but again, I always showed up for work. It was a funny thing. You know, I, I always made it to work. I couldn't make it to anything else. I mm-hmm. couldn't make it to, you know, a family event. I couldn't make it to my girl to meet my girlfriend's parents if I didn't want to. You know, if i was if I was too wasted. I, you know, my father's in the hospital one time. I came home one weekend to visit him. He had some heart surgery mm-hmm. on a Friday, uh, and this friend that I've known since kindergarten, who's now sober again. Oh, my parents are out of town. Let's go to the lake house. So I said, Well, I'll just go out there for Friday night and then see my dad in the morning. I didn't get to him until Sunday night. Mm-hmm. By the time I saw him Sunday night, so on my way back to Austin, I was coked up because I'd been on a two day binge. Mm-hmm. And they knew it, and I felt terrible. And so mm-hmm. my integrity, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest level of integrity that, you know, we all want to achieve. Mm-hmm. I was at about a 1.2, you know, and I felt terrible about it. I knew it. I was conscious enough to know it. So I I kept doing things like that
0: that just tore at my self-esteem. Did you realize it was having that kind of effect on other people? Your life was seemingly getting worse? Probably on some level, on a
1: subconscious level, but consciously I would tell myself I'm really not affecting anybody and they'll be fine and, you know. Mm. Uh my, my dad had my sisters at the hospital with him, or he had my stepmother, you know. Mm-hmm. There were other people there. He didn't really need me there. Later, after I got sober, I talked to him about it. And he, he was loving and kind about it. But he was like, yeah, that didn't feel so good, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> thank God. You know, my, my journey was I got sober before I was married, before I had kids. And I'm grateful every day for that.
0: We'll be right back. My friends... If you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, any place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book 30 Original Stories Missing from the Third and Fourth Editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. 22 means you're out of college by that point. I was released from college. I mean, really what
1: happened is I went to houston and i was still in in college in quotation marks uh, i went to houston for a debutante party i love the debutante parties because mm. it's open bar Open bar the good liquor <laughs> you know and it was a two three day bench went home for a party i had a girlfriend uh who was little river oaks girl here in houston got so wasted and her father was one of us he ended up dying of this disease but he said, hey, uh, I want to try this cocaine. I know you've got some. So he tried cocaine, and we got wasted. And then I almost got in a fight with him. Thank God her brother took my keys because I was going to drive home. You know, went to sleep in an upstairs bedroom, threw up everywhere. Drove back to my ha- parents' house the next day on Sunday. Drove back to Austin on Monday. Monday night, my girlfriend called and said, hey, come over. We need to talk. And I knew I was in trouble. And, you know, so I was preparing my excuses on the way over there. And she just said, hey um my dad said you're a bad influence and if i don't break up with you he's going to cut off my trust fund <laughs> <laughs> and i looked at her and all honesty i said so what'd you say she looked at me and she goes, there's only one right answer oh, <laughs> you're gone you're gone so but interestingly enough that was a shock to my system right there were mm-hmm. shocks along the way yeah uh where something's wrong here you know but mm-hmm. i being told that i'm a bad influence you know and again i prided myself in being a leader being being the most drunk having the best scotch whatever it was you know Mm -hmm. so that was another shock to the system right something's wrong here like i don't think this is supposed to happen this doesn't happen to normal 22 year old kids right and i just turned 22 uh, the month before and the amazing thing to back up a few months a a buddy of mine walter f and leland f they had gotten sober three or four months, six months before, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I knew the family well, partied with the boys. And, you know, back then, parents, oh, yeah, drink here and don't don't go driving. So I'd seen the, the, the sober brothers, and they had the life back in their eyes. Hmm. like They looked alive. And before, we all looked dead. We had that dead look in our eyes. There was, you know, lights on, nobody's home. Yeah. And so hit my bottom after... My girlfriend kicked me to the curb, and again, multiple other things happened. But from the outside looking in, I was clean-cut looking. I had on a polo shirt. I was physically fit. Yeah, I always told myself, I'll never become an addict unless I stick a needle in my arm, right? So I'm never going to stick a needle in my arm, and I never did. However, I did every drug under the sun (laughs) other than that. I didn't need to stick a needle in my arm to hit my bottom. I felt so low, so terrible. So I basically called my parents, and I said— I need help. And I got in the car with him and I just spilled my guts. I said, I can't stop doing cocaine. I smoke pot every day. I drink scotch on the rocks. I've been drinking scotch on the rocks since I was 17, you know. Mm Beer is too slow. Wine. Why drink wine? Let's let's go to scotch. And they said, what do we do? And I said, call Walter's parents. And so they called Walter's parents. And Walter's parents, I mean, there were like three treatment centers in the United States in 1983. Uh Uh-huh. So they said, "Okay, we can get you in on a Saturday." Huh. So, uh, so I checked in on that Saturday, and it was funny. My, as we were driving from Houston to um, uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where the treatment center was, about the last hour, I was starting to work on my parents, like my father, and my stepmother. I'm like, you know, it's not that bad. And <laughs> you know, are you sure this is the right thing? Uh-huh. Of course, they're like, well, you asked for this. You know, uh-huh. like. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're we're driving here and we're paying for this because you asked for this. Don't forget that. Were you coming down in the car? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I flew home on a Wednesday to tell him my troubles and t- to ask for help. Thursday, I said, well, I need to fly back to Austin to uh, take care of some business, you know, uh-huh. to wrap up things. You know, I didn't have anything to do, uh-huh. but get get wasted for two days, which I did. Almost got thrown in jail the Friday night before I flew home Saturday morning to go to treatment because I went around my apartment complex and decided to put my fist through, I don't know, 20 apartment windows Oh, because I thought it was a good idea. Cops came, Yeah, talked my way out of it again. Uh, And and my roommate was there and he said, he's going to treatment in the morning. They're like, okay, I need to not see him again for a long time. So I was coming down because I'd been on a two-day bender and I started to get scared like, oh shit, this is real. But when I went to treatment Howard I thought I was going to a place that would teach me how to drink socially mm. drink like a gentleman yeah I like like have two scotches and do two lines of cocaine and you know <laughs> I went to treatment I checked in and I remember them saying well there's a program of abstinence I'm like I don't know what that word means they go well that means you don't ever drink or do drugs again and I, I questioned whether I was in the right place and I was you know and they said, well, it's just one day at a time. And I said, well, that's stupid. You're telling me I could never drink again, but I, only for 24 hours? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You guys mm-hmm. get your shit together here. <laughs> so stuck there. Uh, you know, back then, they took your clothes, your shoes, uh, gave you pajamas and slippers, mm-hmm. they took your shoelaces so you wouldn't hang each other, you, sure. hang yourself. So you couldn't make a phone call for a week, mm. uh, which all those things helped save my life. Did you have to detox? Uh, they put you in detox for three days, but I didn't have the DTs or anything oh, like good. that. Yeah. I was still very young, very healthy. Um, at, you know, about two weeks into the into the, my thirty days, they said, Well, you know, you don't really have school, you know, I was working at a convenience store or something like that in Austin. You don't have a career to go to, you don't have a family. We strongly recommend you go to a halfway house. And I, I was like, No, I don't need that. I need I need to go home and start making money. I need to start my life. Mm-hmm. I need to start my career. I got this, you know. This was after two weeks. My parents came the last weekend they came to visit at about 28 days. And I, I was a good salesman, so I, I, at least I thought I was. <laughs> and I told them, hey, they're going to strongly recommend this halfway house thing. Don't need it. Got it. I got two super friends in Houston. I'll just hang with them, you know, get a job. Wow. And they basically said, look, you're 22. You're a grown man. You know, do what you got to do, but they did say you really, really, really need to go to a halfway house. That night in bed, and and this was my spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. I woke up, you know, two, three, four in the morning, whatever it was, and I heard this voice, and I think it was God, and it basically said, mm-hmm. "If you don't go, you will die." And I just sat up mm-hmm. in bed and I looked around. Because it was real. My roommate who was snoring over there and like, and I woke up the next morning and I went to my group and I said, all right, I'll go. And so I went to the halfway house. Um, And that was an amazing experience. That was 90 days in Omaha, Nebraska. And so, but then I got there and I, you know, for 90 days and I, again, same thing as the treatment center. I started to feel like this is getting real. This is Omaha in the winter. I don't know if I want to be here. And. Our halfway house was an old funeral parlor, so it wasn't the Four Seasons, you know. And I was like, so there was this big old dude uh, who was the counselor, and he interviewed me. He was my intake guy, and he was the head guy. And he had been a pimp. He had been in prison. He had killed a man, a big old Mm. burly guy. And so, you know, I was clean cut, had my polo shirt on, and his name was Jim. And I said, Jim, let me just tell you. I said, I I can see you're doing great work here. I said, but I got 32 days now. And, you know, I look around at some of these guys that are here, and they really need to be here. And so I'm just letting you know that if you need my bed for someone who really, really needs it, I'm willing to give it up and fly back to Houston today. And he said, white boy, (laughs) sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. He goes, you've got nothing that I need to hear. He goes, let me tell you how it's going to work. So he told me how it worked. And I fulfilled my 90-day commitment and then, and then happily flew home. I have to tell you, I've had the same sponsor for, for over 40 years because I had about three days right. between the treatment center and the halfway house because they couldn't take me in the halfway house. My dear friend Leland F. babysat me for three days because mm-hmm. he knew he had been sober all of seven or eight months, but he knew the danger. He took me everywhere, and he took me to a Friday night meeting. And we're saying the Lord's Prayer, and there was a pretty good-looking blonde mm-hmm. across from me, and you know, we're doing the Lord's Prayer, and I say to Leland, I go, who's that girl over there? She's pretty cute. And he's like, she's married to that guy, Pat C. And so I'm like, that's oh, a shame, geez. you know? I'd like to sleep. And he goes, dude, we're in the Lord's Prayer. I'm like, shut up. So, so I went up, and I said, do you think he would be a good sponsor? He goes, dude, just shut up. You know? So I went to Pat after the meeting. I said, I'm Miles. I got 31 days. I'm flying out tomorrow to Omaha to go over to Halfway House. we you be my sponsor. And I said, and I'll call you in 92 mm-hmm. days. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, sure. And he gave me his number. And then 92 days mm-hmm. later, I called him and I said, hey, Pat. And he goes, yeah, this is Miles. He said, who?
0: <laughs> <laughs> he didn't
1: expect you would do it. He didn't expect to ever hear from me again because it happens. Yeah, you know? sure. We met a couple days later for, for breakfast. And uh, that man has been uh, an inspiration for me. He's basically just loved me unconditionally for forty plus years, yeah. and and we've had a sponsor-sponsee relationship. And of course, it evolves. Initially, it was I was a baby. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a toddler. You know, you mm-hmm. get kids; it's like they they can't do anything without you, right? And then you grow, and they kind of they become adults, and they're like, okay, this guy's okay. And so we've been in businesses together, and we've done all kinds of things. But we, it's been a great relationship, and. And I, you know, because you've heard me say this at a meeting, in, in my 40th year or last year of sobriety, I wanted to shake things up. And so we went through the steps together. I called him and I said, I, we're getting stale here. Like, let's take it to the next level. And so he came up with a way to do the steps, totally different, but
0: relative to the sure. 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly meaningful hmm.
1: for both of us.
0: We both, we did it together. He did it. I did it. So this is you at 39 and him at 49 years. Yeah, he's coming up on 50 years yeah. this November. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that that particular fact is going to surprise a lot of people, that two guys with such long-term sobriety would decide to, let's go back to square one and try this thing a little different way and yeah. see see how we can, you know, kind of shake things up and make things brighter and more colorful in our lives with our programs. That's It's a, a really a kind of a cool way to do it. We've got a lot of years to cover because 40 years of sobriety is a long time. Yeah. When you meet people In the program, do you ever find that the number of years you've been sober intimidates them or kind of sets any kind of barriers between them really wanting to get to know you? I think so. And
1: more intimidating is when you have a dear friend who slips, you know, they have 10, 15, 20 years and they slip then they come back. I think that's really hard for for them to continue to hang with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get it. I understand, you know. But at the end of the day, you and I, three days, 30 years, you just have to wake up in the morning and start over, right? It's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm.
0: There is no seniority, you know? Yeah.
1: You're sober till you die.
0: Yeah. Isn't that great that we we can have that frame of mind and it it never ceases to fulfill itself in our lives so what were your first years in sobriety like did you get to work right away or, or was it a piecemeal approach got to work right away my halfway house said hey there's you go back to
1: houston we know a guy there Luke, he's got an aftercare program we want you to do that and it's once a week you know mm-hmm. and of course i was like, oh i got stuff to do you can handle two hours once a week miles mm-hmm. so and by then i was softened a bit and i and i felt good you know i, I left the halfway house for the first time in a long time with my head held high because I had completed something. Besides working and making money, you know, that was always a given. But I didn't complete college, you know. I failed out miserably because I couldn't. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't make it there, you know. Yeah. And so I did the two years worth of aftercare. I started working with Pat C. right away. We went through the steps. Um, he told me, you will go to men's meetings. You'll go to the Tuesday night Bel Air Men's Group, which is the oldest men's meeting west of the Mississippi River. And and then at the Tuesday night men's meeting, they said, how long do you have? Oh, I've got, you know, four and a half months. Great. You're going to go to the Monday night step study group with an elder statesman who will approve (laughs) that you can, you know, continue coming to Tuesday night meeting. It was a lot of tough love back then. Uh I mean, I grew up in AA where if you wind in a meeting about wanting to drink or do drugs, somebody would reach across the table and hand you a $10 bill and say, we're here to talk about staying sober. We're not here to listen to you whine about wanting to drink. Here's 10 bucks. Go buy whatever booze of your choice and,
0: you know, come back when you're ready. Well, there was a time in AA, and I remember hearing a guy from one of the early Akron groups speak many years ago, 25, 30 years ago. He'd been sober since like the late 40s. But he said in those days, if a guy slipped, the group had to vote him back in. Oh, interesting. And if you didn't get voted in, they'd give you a change for the bus and wish you well. I'm glad that things changed yeah. from there, but to me, one of the weakest links between organized treatment, like a halfway house or a treatment center or even an aftercare program is the handoff to AA. Sounds to me like you had a relatively decent handoff. I had a great handoff. My counselor on the two years of aftercare, he was
1: sober. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met Todd R. His, his father was in aftercare with me. Todd wasn't sober yet. Oh, wow. Todd calls me every year on his birthday because his dad was like, "You might, you know, you need to hang out with this guy Miles, and you know, (laughs) he's in my aftercare and he's about your age, and and you know, he was twisting off at the end of his rope, and um, and he calls me every year on his birthday, and that's a that's a big deal to me, you know. Yeah, look, it feels good to have a positive influence on someone's life because when I was drinking and drugging. I did not typically, I definitely didn't have a positive influence on any of my girlfriends' (laughs) lives. There was a a trail of destruction there. And I didn't mean to, you know, but when I got liquored up, dude, all bets were off. You know, whatever commitment I made to you, whether it's pick you up to take you to a bar or a party or I just, I, I couldn't function. I couldn't, I couldn't perform. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be a man of integrity. Yeah, I mean, that was the bottom line for me. And I desperately wanted to be a man of integrity.
0: Yeah, and you got that by virtue of going to meetings, working your AA steps, yeah. and associating with guys like Pat and Todd and the other important men in your life. Mark M., JP, like, uh, so many guys were so
1: influential early on in my sobriety. And then also, I'm very involved in... in been self-employed for this is my 40th year of self-employment being an entrepreneur which is no coincidence that I had to get sober first before (laughs) I say let's start a company (laughs) and the bank would loan me money to start a company there's a direct correlation that's amazing yeah anybody wants to start a business so so I've been on this entrepreneurial journey and I've got a dear friend uh, Bruce S who's who's been sober, who's, who struggled with a bit, and I've been watching him and waiting for him. You know how you have friends that you've known?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, and, and very successful. Uh, and you're like, dude, I've got a chair right here. I really, I really want you to join me because it's a great trip, you know? And, yeah. and it's so amazing to be there, to have been there, to still be there for him, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so life is a journey about, connecting to people, in my opinion, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And having the bait out for a guy like that and leaving it out there so that when he's ready, he can be absolutely certain that you're ready.
1: I never said to him one time, you need to get sober. Those words never came out of my mouth Mm -hmm. because I knew, well, I believed that it would have the opposite effect of what I intended. But he watched me walk the walk. You know, I heard a great thing in my first year of sobriety is don't Watch people's lips, watch their feet. Watch their feet. Yeah.
0: Wherever their feet go, that's what's important to yeah. them. Yeah, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. So during the, the 40 years that you've been sober, mm-hmm. can you recall for us a handful of the times when? Your program was stretched to perhaps almost the breaking point where you had things occur that had you not been as involved as you were, you might not have survived them or you might have drank or or maybe both that 's a great question.
1: you know I tell you the best thing I did early on in sobriety when I came back to Houston mm-hmm. was I got involved with a fellowship. I had a couple of sober sober buddies right, and then you know I started to hang out with Pat C he was very. Generous, you know, introducing me to all his sober friends. And so you just kind of got in the click. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's critical for uh, men to go to men's meetings and women to go to women's yeah. meetings. Not that, you know, I did go to mixed meetings. Sure. And, so I've always been connected to the fellowship, number one. There have been, you know, I started my first coming when I was 23, almost went bankrupt when I was 27. And then when I had two kids on the ground at a 31, 32, felt like I was going to go bankrupt. It, you know, I was probably not as close as I thought I was either time, but it felt terrible, uh-huh. you know, uh, cause I've always been very aggressive in business and, and wanted to be successful. That was important. to yeah. me. And so I don't know, Howard, that's a great question. I, I'm the kind of guy that I've always said when I have too much success in every aspect of my life, I'm more vulnerable to drinking then. Yeah. Then when times get tough, when times get tough, I drill down. I get tougher, smarter, stronger, faster. I don't think, you know, a martini would solve this problem (laughs) because I know it won't. I'm very, very, very left brained, which is, again, wonderful and terrible depending on the situation you're in. I don't really feel like I've ever come close to drinking. I don't feel like I've ever come close to slipping. And part of it is I have a, a strong belief in the core of my being that if I drink, I will die. Yeah. I don't believe I'll come back and I don't want to die.
0: When did you first start having that feeling in AA? It was
1: probably around a year. Really? Yeah. It wasn't in the first few months. It wasn't, it was probably around a year. Hmm. And I also, you know, I I came home, I got a job in the construction business. uh, Then 15 months later, started my first company. Mm -hmm. And part of not wanting to go out and drink and do drugs again is I don't want to you don't lose what you have, right? You know? Right. Even if it's not that much, it's way more than you had when you were drinking and drugging typically. Yeah. I mean I've always been amazed by people who can drink alcoholically and become successful in business. Yeah. Shocking to me. Yeah. I couldn't wake up for a noon class, <laughs> you know? And and when I worked in college and it was usually the night shift, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know. It wasn't- but you showed ambition early. I mean, you you showed ambition when you were 12, 14, 16, 18 years old. My liquor business. Your, your liquor business, I mean, <laughs> brilliant. But, but uh, you know, you were showing ambition then. So my feeling is you take an ambitious guy and sober him up, and there's no telling what he can do, except things get too good. Yep. And I've always felt that if I go out, it's going to be over something that's, going so well that I'm starting to take credit for it. I'm Got starting to be proud of it instead of giving being grateful for it and starting to think this happens and it happened because I did that. So I must have made it happen. And you kind of get into that mindset that you're starting to run the show again. Yep. And you look around you and God's kind of in the background and you know, he's there and you can s- still speak well of God's presence and what he's doing for you. But there's that sense of you know i'm i'm doing a pretty good job with my life right now mm-hmm. and then something like cancer hits or something like divorce hits or something like a, a child's uh, addiction hits and then that's the wake up call isn't it
1: yeah uh, no question look living life and taking risk and having a family i mean there's a lot of hurt that comes with that and just losing you know i've lost my mother my father uh, my stepmother's still alive and and hurts come along the way, but whenever I'm hurting over something, I lean into the program. Yeah. That's just kind of been what I've done. Um, and I thank God for that. You're talking about gratitude. Our, I don't know, about seven or eight years ago as our kids were becoming adults, we came up with a kind of a family Crest, which is the star for the state of Texas, a circle, which is kind of circle life. And basically we're all connected. And then our motto is live in gratitude. That's cool. The amazing thing about this program as men and women in the program is we get to pass knowledge onto our kids, you know, um, and my children have never seen me drunk high. Mm-hmm. I've always been there, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I've been able to show my, my vulnerability, my, I couldn't have done that, you know, without you guys. And I still come to meetings and I said, I like to sit on the front row whenever I can, because, you know, if I go to a Dave Matthews concert, I love Dave Matthews. Uh Do I want to sit in the back or do I want to get as close to the stage as possible? I want to be as close to the stage as possible. I want to get that on me. I want to be, I want to be in the middle of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I learn so much from listening to other men, share their experience, strength and hope and meetings. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I learn a lot from you watching you volunteer probably more than anyone I know, not just the podcast you do, but the, but, but you give back by being the greeter at this Thursday meeting we just attended. I love to see you there. In fact, when you had your surgery a couple of weeks ago, I was sad.
0: I didn't get to hug you. I missed you. Yeah, right. You know, because it's just that little thing, that little connection. Yeah, and it's a big connection in the end. And, for, and for me too, whenever I see you, I feel the same way. And knowing that men were praying for me, and and That's you know, it, cool. it's a big thing. And I sense the love that I get from the men in the program. And I'm I'm hoping that I'm giving it back as as much as I can. Your presence, I think, in this particular meeting and other meetings over the years. I think has had a, a terrific influence on some of the younger guys in the program and with 40 years in the program and the success that you've experienced in business and your personal life in general do you ever find that that is a little bit of a barrier to men who have been in the program for a while who may not have achieved what you have in the outs- outside of the program I don't know. It's a good question.
1: Um, I hope not. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, money is just a tool. You know, it just buys you a nicer car, you can put your kids through college debt free, or you can give money to charities you like. It doesn't. It doesn't make you stronger, smarter, faster. Um, It's just a vehicle to do something else to facilitate whatever you really want
0: to do you know Yeah, the reason I ask that is because sometimes I perceive that there's you know the whole idea of comparing my insides to your outsides happens within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous too and the guy who hasn't been sober so long is looking at the guy who has been sober so long he's hearing about his little five-minute clips of his life or maybe they know each other on social media they're seeing just what the other person wants them to see and their their life looks so perfect and their sobriety seems so strong or they're talking about yes I get up in the morning I do a full you know uh, what I'm going to do for the day I do my prayers I do meditation I spend 20 minutes reading and I'm sitting there not doing all those things and feeling less than as a result of that do you ever do you ever perceive that amongst the meetings that you go to that comparison of insides to outsides? I do it myself sometimes, right? Yeah. Do you? What does that look like? I would tell
1: you that it, it never makes me feel good when I compare myself to others. Um, I'm a very competitive person, very type A, very competitive, and, and I wanna win, you know? I don't wanna win at all costs, mm-hmm. uh, thank God, but, uh, but I, I, I like to win. And so it just doesn't serve my soul to say, well, Howard meditates 30 minutes every morning. Shit, I only meditate 10. I must be doing something wrong here. I used to think that I knew what was the right path for other people, starting with my wife and kids, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then as you go through this life, this journey, I don't know what's right for my kids. I don't know what's right for my wife. You know, they they have their own unique journey and their own path. You know, what I say to friends of mine in the program that that are new, what I say to my kids is you absolutely 100% deserve to be happy. That's the great news. However, I have no idea what makes you happy, Howard. You you have to figure that out. I'll I'll help you in that journey uh, to an extent. I won't do it for you. But, but. And that's what I would say to someone who's comparing their insides to my outsides. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is unique about AA meetings, I'm in, as you know, I'm in Houston. You know, six months out of the year, sure. we've got place here, place there, wherever I have a house, I have an AA group that I mm-hmm. go to. Mm-hmm. That is a absolute core value of mine. I, I have to have an AA group that that I'm connected to. They know me, I know them. They check them. Hey, we haven't seen you in a couple of months. Oh. Over here. Okay, I'll be back, you know. Mm -hmm. That's important. It's important. And so back to your question, I don't like doing it. I'm not saying that I don't do it because I I certainly do it less now. Early sobriety, I think you do it more Mm -hmm. because you're still feeling guilty about all the wreckage from your past that was a month ago, a year ago, five years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I remember someone, and I was actually at this meeting Tuesday night. I said to a guy next to me, I said, man, I was offended when I heard someone say in a meeting that, you know, my brain didn't come out of hawk. And I really wasn't a, a grown-up until I had at least five years of sobriety. And I was offended when I had a year and a half, two years. I thought, what was what is, what is that person talking about? I, of course I know where i got it all going on. <laughs> and then when I had five years, of, I was like, man, that guy was right. And then when I had ten years and I look back on five years, I'm like, God, I was just a <laughs> toddler, you know. But it's part of the life experience, you know. Yeah. And, and you got sober relatively young. I got sober relatively young. Mm-hmm. And, and look, we all get sober, you know, when we get sober. When we are called to get sober, that's the right time for us to get sober. And you cannot make an alcoholic sober and you cannot make an alcoholic drink, right? Who wants to say sober? Right. Had my parents come to me and said, we think there's a problem. We're going to put you in this treatment center, blah, blah, blah. It would not have worked. I had to hit my bottom. I had to go to them and say, I'm going to die in less than three years. I believe that. Help me. Mm. Send me over here. Mm. And thank God they just called Fran up
0: and said, where
1: did you send Walter again?
0: (laughs) So all of these things were in the right place at the right time for you to get what you got to be where you are right now. Yeah. And all that's come from doing the same basics that you did day one.
1: Yeah, but... As you mature in the program yeah.
0: like I didn't meditate for the first
1: 25 years maybe longer hmm. I was too busy I wanted to conquer the world I wanted to I'm the kind of guy that wakes up in the morning and I'm rolling right like i don't i'm I'm awake mm-hmm. I don't need to sit in bed and drink cup of coffee I'm going man uh, I'll get a cup of coffee on the way you know and i heard I always heard people talk about meditating in the morning and I would pray at night I would do the tenth step or this side or the other but I don't know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years, whatever it was, I started meditating, you know, and I meditated this morning. And, and what I started noticing is, gee, I feel better. My day goes better. You know, I'm more subtle when I do that little thing and meditate in the morning, you know, but I had to get there on in my time. Uh, had Pat C said, Dude, you got to start meditating, or I can't sponsor you anymore. That would have been terrible, you know? Yeah. And we all have our own unique journey. Your journey is different than my journey. All of our journeys are different. They're similar, yeah. but they're different. You know, some people have to wait till they're 40, 60. They have to get divorced three times. They have to fail in business. They Their kids have to, you know, kick them out of the house. I don't know. Yeah. I just got a, a 22... I felt so terrible about myself that I would do anything. You know, if they told me take your clothes off and run down the street naked, I would have done it. Right. I was I felt that terrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's what it takes for some people to to be instructed in such a way that breaks through the the resistance. Yep. It really does. I want this more than I want that. We're all selfish bastards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the, at, at the end of the day, aren't we? Yeah. So if someone asked you right now, and I'll ask you, to describe your spiritual journey over a 40-year time span, mm-hmm. how would you describe that?
1: That's a that's a deep one. Um, because I am a very spiritual person. I, I was fortunate in the fact that when I got into the program, I didn't hate God. I didn't have an anti-religion bent. Um, so it was easy for me to start praying you know mm-hmm. it took a little bit and then i had never been baptized so you know i think within a year of sobriety i went to a methodist church and got baptized mm-hmm. and i mentioned mm-hmm. we belong to this church here the Episcopalian church where it's been this church has been so amazingly gracious to alcoholics
0: they have been yes, uh,
1: incredible they're... uh so my spiritual journey is praying, meditating, and being in nature. I find God in people and in nature. Hmm. That's just me, that's just Mm -hmm. how I do it. We have a house in Colorado and uh, do a lot of entertaining up there, I have a sober guy's ski trip there every year. Um, Being out in the snow, being in the trees, being hiking, you know, a beautiful mountain stream. Mm I just find spirituality in nature because I look around at the mountaintop at the you know peak of a hike and I just go, there's gotta be a lot more than me out there. There's gotta be a lot more than all the humans combined out
0: there. I mean, look at this, this is spectacular. What a great thing to have right within your own vista. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The flip
1: side of that is the people I see that struggle for a long period of time. He slip and slip and slip and slip right. and sometimes they die. I had a sponsee that overdosed and died and it's terrible. He it was a doctor that had wife and two kids and but the people who slip and slip and slip and who struggle, my belief is they they cannot truly turn their life over to God and say, Do with me as you will, whatever that is. Yeah. Again, I'll I'll run naked in the street. Right. I'll do whatever. But I cannot keep doing this. And that's, when I said we're selfless bastards, I I didn't, this is a program where you have to put yourself first. You have to put your sobriety first. Uh, I have an amazing, beautiful wife, and she knows that this meeting on Thursday feeds my soul. You know, and we were talking earlier, and she's like, I'm going to the gym, you want to meet me? I'm like, no, it's Thursday. Oh, no, no, go to your meeting. (laughs) 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 Please, please go to that meeting. Because... And and she means it in a loving way, like this feeds your soul. Yeah. These men in this room, you know, she said, look, you get fed by this process, you know. And that's another reason why I know that this is the right place for me to be. You know, I, I never got that in a church. Yeah.
0: I never got that in my fraternity. Right. Well, it's a spiritual revelation, isn't it? It is. Putting two and two together, where, where your life was, where it is now, and how it's been over the last 40 years, to be able to look at that and see a spiritual thread through the entire thing. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about it. My wife did the very same thing with me recently. After I had the, the, the original uh, diagnosis, uh, I didn't want to go to meeting. I didn't want to go to my regular men's meeting. And, I, you know, why is that? Were you were you ashamed? You didn't want to tell people? Not I was ashamed. It was just that I didn't know enough yet. And I, I didn't want to I didn't want people coming up to me and saying, Oh, what's going on? What's, and, and not not have something to tell them and whatever it was. So I wasn't going to go. And my wife says, you need to go. Yeah. She says, the very fact that you don't want to go is the reason why you need to go. Yeah. And so you and I are both blessed to have spouses who can sense that. And. Mm-hmm. Sounds to me like that's a really great source of gratitude for you as well as for me.
1: Absolutely. I don't know about you, but I'm married about... Five stations over my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I met my wife, got engaged, and got married in 11 months. So that oh. tells you I knew I had to close that deal fast before she figured me out. <laughs>
0: and it's worked and out. And then she was
1: stuck with me. So and it's worked out, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been right. great. It's been an incredible journey.
0: You were telling me about something that you had written recently. And to kind of wrap all this up, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us and what went into the writing of it. Very kind of you. Yeah. So,
1: you know, after my 39th year of sobriety, look, a- another year, just like a birthday, you turn yeah. 60, well, you're yeah. 59 last year. It's not it's 61. It's not that big of a deal. But there is something when you hit a milestone, yeah. you know, one month is like, who thought when yeah. we first got sober? No one stays sober 30 days. That's These guys are lying. That's right. not possible. <laughs> right. And you get 30 days, you're like, nobody can really stay sober a year, you know. So coming up on my 40th year, Pat C. and I did the steps again. If you asked him, he would say, I got as much as Miles did out of it. I mean, it was was a spiritual experience for both of us, you're right, to go through this together. To start going to more meetings, I wrote a letter to all my kids, you know, not about my sobriety, but like, hey, you know, I'm in the next phase of my life and told them how much I loved them. And, you know, as a parent, of course, you're going to make mistakes, told them about that. and, And then I decided to write a letter about what it's like to be sober for 40 years and you know huh you could take a novel you know but i just i put down a little over a page and just wrote down what was important to me so i appreciate you asking i
0: love the fact that you that you felt the urge to do that because that that would be the question the one of the toughest questions to ask in such an interview as this tell me what it's been like for you to be sober for 40 years You've got it all written down. I love it. Yeah. I'll tell something about myself.
1: This in Houston, this is my home meeting, you know, Steamboat Springs, where we have a place. I've got a home meeting there, a men's meeting on a Monday night Mm -hmm. Paris. I've got a home meeting there that's uh, on a Friday. But um, this is my home group, and you guys are very important to me. And some of you I know very well, and some of you I've never met, you know, and— and the and they also the great thing about this meeting is we're constantly bringing in new people yeah which so is wonderful nice flow of people but I actually brought this to read when I got my 40th chip but I couldn't do it I was afraid I wouldn't be able to get through it well it's okay to cry yeah but that's my ego I don't know you can't you know you you, you got to be you know you got to be strong powerful you know yeah and so. I thought I'm going to read this in this interview with you. So here we go, and hopefully I'll get through it. Uh, But if I don't get through it and break down a little bit, that's okay, too.
0: It works out just fine. Uh, If you start screaming and gyrating, I can always edit that out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that won't happen. Okay, 40 years reflection. Uh, Forty years ago, at age 22, I was a terrible son, sibling, friend, boyfriend, student, employee, and citizen to to humanity. Mm. And I did not believe I would live to see 25. So I asked for help. The simple request landed me in treatment for 30 days, a halfway house for three months, and two years of weekly aftercare, all of which created the foundation for the incredible life I have today. I asked Pat C to sponsor me at 30 Days Sober And I've had his friendship, his guidance through example, and his unconditional love all of my sobriety. Because I became sober at 22, I was able to start my first company at age 23. With guts, determination, and my wife and my sober community encouraging me and believing in me, I became successful. Waking up for the workday sober, intense, and focused is a game changer in the business world and provided to me a distinct advantage over others. I have dared greatly in business, failed greatly in business, and fortunately I have succeeded more times than not. This would not have been possible to do this had I not become sober, stayed in the AA program and married my wife Terrell. I met, fell in love and married my beautiful lover, best friend, amazing mother of our children and life partner, and we've always shared everything with each other. We have no secrets from each other because we live honestly and because of living sober, I've not done the things that I would need to hide from her. Hmm. FYI, I was not an attractive prospect for marriage while drinking, cheating, (laughs) spending (laughs) more every month than I made and lying. Thank God I met my wife after I got sober. uh, Um, Prior to sobriety, there was no remote possibility of me falling deeply in love with Terrell or anyone. With her marrying me, and staying faithful to her and achieving the amazing marriage and partnership that we have today. She is my best friend. Mm. Had I kept drinking and drugging, my body and brain would have been ravaged by my disease and my brain would have been pickled. And of course, death was nearby. Now at age 62, I can physically do almost anything I care to do and I can still be competitive. I tell my children that one of my goals in life is to be skiing with my kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids on my 100th birthday. Don't bet against me, Howard. I'm going to mm-hmm. do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No doubt. I've always continued to go to meetings and still do, even after 40 years. Many friends and family members ask me why I still go. And it is because, A, everyone I know that has my disease stopped going to meetings, and they started drinking, drugging and insanity or death was the next step for them. I will not do that to you, my sober brothers, or to my children, or the people that I love. B, I give and receive friendship, compassion, and love from the people who have the same disease that I have. Mm. And C, I believe that I am an example for the newly sober, distraught, and hopeless alcoholic. Mm. By the way, I still sit on the front row as I was taught early in my sobriety to sit up front and to sit in the middle of the herd. I still believe that I have so much to learn from my sober brothers. My relationships with my friends before sobriety were superficial and transactional. Either you wanted something from me or I wanted something from you. Today, however, I am blessed with a large group of friends whom I care about on a deep and meaningful level. Pat C, Joe P, Mark M, George J, Todd R, Bruce S, and many, many others who've mentored me, cared for me, loved me without expectations, and they've been on my side on this amazing journey through life. Their friendship is priceless. And in turn, I care about their well-being, their families, their health and happiness. And I also love them unconditionally to the best of my ability. None of this was possible prior to my becoming sober. Lastly, I want to say that I'm not special because of my length of sobriety, but I've created and built an incredible life journey filled with my loving wife, my children, who I love immensely, and who I can thoughtfully express to them how I feel about them. I've always shown through example to my children that I am a stable, solid, and loving, energetic, positive force in their lives. And now I can show this to my grandchildren. My life has its great days and its terrible days, but I have lived life consciously, with intention, and with integrity. Our family motto is live in gratitude, therefore I am blessed. I made it.
0: (laughs) Oh, God, that is beautiful. Thank you. I haven't had anybody do that on the podcast, and I think it's so beautifully introspective, Mm -hmm. exuded the love that you have not only for your family, your wife, and your kids, but for your brothers and sisters in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. To me, one could read that at any stage in their sobriety and be encouraged by it and be inspired by it. God, it's such a beautiful thing to do, and I wanna thank you for doing that. And I wanna thank you for doing the interview today. This is really, I think, turned out terrific. I've gotten to know a lot more about you than I knew. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now in meetings, when you mention this or that, I'll know the before story and the after story, which is very cool. My belief is that if even one person out there hears what you said, and especially the thing you just read, and is inspired to not take that drink or inspired enough to call AA or have someone take him to a meeting, you and I have been incredibly successful with this interview. But
1: that was the whole purpose, right, is, is, yeah. is to give back. You know, you, you and I talked about before you started recording, how many times have you had people come up to you and they're like, remember when you said that in the meeting? Three months ago, three years ago, 10 years ago, it changed my life. And we yeah. were all connected, you know. And you never know what you're going to do to set someone on a better path. You, you can also be destructive and hurt people, right, sure. which, is, sure. which is something we did unintentionally, most likely, before we were sober. But, yeah, that's, that's the whole goal of this. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great experience for me. And I'm so grateful that, you, that you're doing this. I mean,
0: this is a legacy. This is cool. Well, this is your story. And I love you. I love you. And I'm, I'm you. pleased to be your brother in the program. And again, many thanks. Thank you, Howard. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Miles S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers, or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast, or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear more than 120 episodes of AA Recovery Interviews. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.